0: It's Megacom, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014, at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevik, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Lan, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Kali Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstetter, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek and many, many, many more. Plus, I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center Magical Orlando, Florida March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www. MegaConvention.com. That's MegaCon 2014. Be there.
1: Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, went to Taco Pizza Bell the other day and ordered my usual, which is to say, I got three tacos, two orders of nachos, and a large Dr. Pepper. Now, usually at least at the Taco Pizza Bell Hut that I normally go to, that works out to exactly $7. Not $6.99. Not $7.01. $7 even, Stephen. Now, what made this particular visit different was I remembered I had a MasterCard. It's a gift card in my wallet. And I knew for a fact that I had 50 cents on there. Not 49 cents. Not 51 cents. 50 cents. Even Steven. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and run the balance out on that. Went ahead and uh, presented first my gift card and then my my bank card to pay for my food. Once it was all over, I looked at my receipt. It was precisely $6.50. Michael Bailey, wherever he is, I know he's smiling right now.
2: Hey, your attention, please.
0: This is a piece of art.
2: His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom
0: wears body to conceal his own angular form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called
3: super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
1: Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love comics, movies, and TV shows. But especially comics. And today, we'll be talking about one of my favorite comic book storylines of all time. Yes. We. Today, I've got a very special guest along for the ride to help me sift through Superman's Panic in the Sky storyline from 1992. But, before we get into that, into the summaries we go! This is Action Comics number 674, the prologue to Panic in the Sky entitled The Past is Prologue. On the planet Cletus IV, a being that appears to be Superman, walks into a drinking establishment and gets into a scuffle with some of the patrons. News of the man's exploits reaches the ears of the warrior known as Draga. Dragus fought Superman in the past and wants a rematch in order to regain his lost honor. Back on Earth, the real Superman busts up a group of French intergang agents and hands them over to the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit. From nearby, the Helgramite watches the scene with great interest. Superman then visits Bibbo Bibowski and Jimmy Olsen over in Suicide Slum. Jimmy's just gotten his photographs back of a recent battle and believes that these pics may put him back on top of the journalism game. On Cletus 4, the foe Superman meets with the Cell Keeper, the being he once encountered when last he was trapped on Warworld. The Cell Keeper brings him to the monument of the late cleric, the man responsible for giving Superman the Kryptonian Eradicator. Draga finds the two and begins fighting with Superman. Superman doesn't appear to have all of his memories and doesn't understand why Draga insists on fighting him. Suddenly, Warworld appears in the sky above the planetoid. The new leader of Warworld sits on a throne next to Maxima of Almarak. The leader deduces that the being that Draga is fighting is not actually Superman, but the shapeshifter known as Supergirl. Supergirl shifts into her common form and defeats Draga. The leader of Warworld reveals himself to be Brainiac. Supergirl and Maxima both pledge their allegiance to Brainiac. Next... First Strike. Superman, the Man of Steel number 9, entitled Power Breakfast. The city of Metropolis erupts with a series of brilliant flashes and explosions as Brainiac's skull ship descends down upon it. Clark Kent, having just finished having lunch with Lois Lane, quickly gr- changes to Superman and flies off to confront the menace. The ship and in- the ship counters Superman's efforts with deadly radiation blasts from its eyes and steel-coiled tentacles that emerge from the underbelly of the ship. The people of Metropolis all share different reactions to the most recent crisis. Emil Hamilton meets up with Bibbo Babowski and Jimmy Olsen, who promptly retreat to Professor Hamilton's laboratory. Lois Lane finds a disposable camera and begins taking her own snapshots of the calamity. The gangbuster arrives and protects the children of Myra Allen's orphanage. At LexCorp, Lex Luthor finishes up a meeting with Mayor Berkowitz and Colin Thornton. Thornton leaves to return to the Newstime building and runs into Jimmy Olsen. He's impressed by some of the photos that Jimmy had taken of an earlier incident. Superman meanwhile continues fighting against Brainiac's ship. He punches his way inside and reaches the command module, but Brainiac is not present. He's he's operating the ship via remote control. Superman destroys the inner workings of the ship, then heaves the entire thing into the bay. Brainiac sends a telepathic signal to Superman alerting him that this attack was but a distraction for the real threat. Brainiac's commandeered warworld and he's coming to Earth. Second Strike, Superman number 65 entitled Headman. Superman assembles an army to fight the oncoming invasion of Warworld after o- Orion and Lightray try to take it on themselves. I'm not kidding, that's really all there is to this issue. Third Strike. Adventures of Superman number 488, entitled Counter-Strike. Previously, Superman fought Brainiac's headship and tossed it into the ocean, but it seems it was not the end. The ship recovered and captured Aquaman, before coming to attack the assembled heroes of the DC Universe. The headship fires an energy beam at the headquarters of the heroes, disintegrating part of it. This triggers the heroes into attack mode. They've worked out a code language which Brainiac doesn't know. By means of this, they hope to conceal future plans of their attack while conversing amongst themselves. Booster Gold makes an error. He keeps his thoughts unchecked while trying to free the dangling Aquaman. The headship, which is designed to operate on Brainwaves, reads his thoughts and teleports Aquaman inside it. Guy Gardner tries a desperate move. He forms a huge energy fist and slams the headship into the ground, temporarily disabling it. Double X appears on the Mobius chair and links his mind with Mr. Miracle to trip the emergency switches inside the ship. They enter the ship. Double X instructs them to reach the core to free Aquaman. The ship has self-repaired itself from the previous battle with Superman. Guy Gardner has a bad habit of not following orders and comes close to almost killing Aquaman while trying to generate an energy vice to open the cell door they free aquaman after superman uses his heat vision to fuse the circuits mr miracle says that he'll attend to aquaman's injuries superman then says it's time for them to take the battle to warworld meanwhile brainiac and maxima watch the screens as they near our solar system brainiac says that he'll carry the fight to metropolis he teleports several of warworld's fighters to the earth. The fighters come down in the streets of Metropolis and are immediately attacked by the remaining heroes. An excellent plan made by Superman thus saves Metropolis from instant annihilation. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the other heroes are traveling inside Brainiac's headship. They make a jump into hyperspace, and Double X says that Metropolis has been attacked. After some time, the ship jumps out of hyperspace in front of Warworld. Brainiac attacks him telepathically, but Double X counters him. Brainiac then imprisons the ship in a, tractor br- in a tractor beam and brings it down into the arena. Superman comes out and finds Drago waiting for him. He hesitates, but then surges forward. Maxima and Supergirl are also teleported into the arena and while the other heroes come out. The battle begins, and Drago and Supergirl don't understand the code language and fall for Superman's ploy. The heroes divide into two groups minus Superman... An inner Warworld. Brainiac's Furious. He creates an artificial storm, but Superman manages to free Dra- Draga and Supergirl from Brainiac's influence. He enlists Draga's help in fighting Brainiac with the promise of a duel after that. Fourth Strike. Action Comics number 675, entitled Divide and Conquer. Warworld Reaches the Earth's Moon. In Metropolis, Team Luther and the Special Crimes Unit assist the heroes. Jimmy works freelance for News Time. On Warworld, Double X teleports the headship with Superman, Supergirl, and Draga to turn off Warworld's teleporters. And Orion and Light Ray's boxes help Double X. Brainiac controls Guy Gardner, Flash, Kilowog, Big Barda, and other heroes to stop the others. Double X stops Warworld's surveillance screen. Fifth Strike. Superman the Man of Steel number ten entitled Tidal Wave. Having commandeered Brainiac's headship, the free heroes of Earth rebel and attack Warworld. There are still dozens of heroes, however, who are still under Brainiac's mental domination. They all turn their attention on Superman and attack him en masse. Meanwhile, Draga f- frees the new gods. Double X uses Metron's Mobius chair to amplify his telepathic powers and broadcasts a message to the free heroes to help Superman. Brainiac, seeing that the heroes may gain a foothold, activates an antimatter doomsday weapon to wipe them all out. Draga uses his own body to barricade the weapon's aperture, thus sacrificing himself to save the others. Superman instructs Kilowog and Guy Gardner to blast a hole through Warworld so they can dispel the weapon as far away as possible. In honor of Draga's memory, Supergirl decides to assume his form. Maxima, meanwhile, realizes that the only reason she's been serving Brainiac is because he threatened her home world of Almarac. There's no guarantee, however, that Brainiac won't destroy Almarac anyway, and she turns against him and sides with the heroes. Next, Superman number 66, Our Army at War. Superman and his forces are attacked by Brainiac, and the battle seems to be weighing in Brainiac's favor until Maxima, with the help of Guy Gardner and the Metal Men, is able to break through Warworld's defenses and lobotomize Brainiac. Epilogue. Adventures of Superman, number 489, entitled, Hail the Conquering Heroes. Previously, Brainiac had unleashed his death radiation upon the heroes, but Guy and Maxima hatched a plan to defeat Brainiac. They penetrate the central chambers to launch a psychic assault on him. Maxima is successful in lobotomizing Brainiac after he's cut off from Warworld systems. Now, Metron wants to take Brainiac to New Genesis to study him. His quest for knowledge will progress with Brainiac as a weak sample. Orion brings the Overseer of Warworld. The Overseer tells that news of Brainiac's defeat has already spread among the populace. They bear no ill will towards the the Earth, the heroes, or the humans. Superman tells Overseer that Warworld must, must leave the solar system and return to its previous destination. Overseer agrees to this and promises to do so. Orion comes forward to put himself as the new r- ruler of Warworld. Lightray also wishes to remain alongside his friend. Maxima tries to coax Orion into letting her be his mate, but Orion has had enough of her. Guy Gardner takes the chance to impress Maxima, and she accepts his proposal. The remaining members of the space unit of heroes are busy in rescuing the victims of Brainiac's attacks when Orion broadcasts his position as ruler of Warworld. Superman requests Light Ray to generate a boom tube. Light Ray does so, and the gathered heroes step into the portal. Back on Earth, Lex Luthor has organized a parade to honor the heroes for their sacrifice to save Earth. They're applauded when suddenly a boom tube opens and the remaining heroes come through. Lex Luthor hands over the podium to Superman. Superman begins with the incidents on Warworld, proceeding to the great teamwork exhibited by a reassembled Justice League, and adds that the sacrifice is made, ending with the mention of Draga, who had made Earth his greatest sacrifice, in spite of not being from Earth. On the asteroid, Supergirl and the cellkeeper bury Draga beside the cleric. Cellkeeper says that Draga has gained great honor in, in sacrificing himself to save Supergirl. Supergirl voices her feelings about Draga and recalls her past, saying that she'll remain in the form of Kara Zor-El and reside on Earth thereafter. Emil Hamilton is working in his laboratory when he sees the isolation chamber and recalls past events. Husk had teleported into this world and Jimmy was gone the first time they used the chamber. Jimmy Olsen comes back as full-time photographer of the Daily Planet. His recently taken pictures leave Perry White dumbstruck. Jimmy also gets a raise. Mildred Krantz pays Emile a visit. She's uninterested in his work and slams a circuit board. This results in Emil being pulled into the isolation chamber. In horror, Mildred hits a button which turns on the machine, sending Emile into the unknown and pulling Husk into this dimension. Mildred faints at his hulking sight. Emil has been transported into a different dimension. He sees a being named Flashpoint being threatened by some guards. Flashpoint can't speak his language, but gestu- gestures Emil to run for his life, and he too follows. One of Flashpoint's friends attack Emil, and Flashpoint tries to hold him back. This momentary distraction causes Flashpoint to be wounded by a guard. A vehicle appears, and a man gestures Emil to bring Flashpoint inside. Emil starts talking with the man named Number One. One says that he knows Jimmy, and is his father. He adds that Emil has fallen in the middle of a revolution. Meanwhile, Husk is carrying the limp form of Mildred through the streets when some Team Luther soldiers intercept him and ask him to surrender. So, what did I think of all this? Well. The short version is that this is one of my favorite Superman storylines ever. The writing, the art, the characters, the epicness of the story. I just love Panic in the Sky to pieces. And that's really the short version. I mean, I could gush over this thing all day long and into the night. And. I have to say that one of my favorite parts of this story is actually the Man of Steel chapter. Um, the very first one. Uh, chapter, uh, This is uh, Man of Steel number nine, First strike. Power breakfast. Basically, Superman fights Brainiac's headship. It's basically shaped like a giant Brainiac head, right? Fights a bunch of uh, robots and if there's anything that I love in a Superman story, it's Superman fighting robots. If you put Superman fighting giant freaking robots into your story, I guarantee you, I'm gonna love it. And that that particular issue is just chock full of it, but more broadly, of all of the chapters of of Panic in the Sky, all due respect to everyone else who worked on it, but chapter one, the bit where Superman takes on Brainiac's headship, that, without a doubt, is hands down my favorite. Like I said, I could gush over this story all day long and into the night, and I very well may, but I've got a very special guest who's eager to gush right along with me, so I'll come back to that. I'll be right back after these messages.
4: Sure is great to be back from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories.
5: Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World.
4: The Battle For and Fall of Metropolis.
5: Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey.
4: Worlds Collide.
5: Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have dead again.
4: And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well.
5: Well, most of them anyway.
4: Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they?
5: But from Crisis to Crisis is back new episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before.
4: You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com
5: And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash podcast.com.
4: Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no No.com, forget that. (laughs) So from Crisis to Crisis is back, folks, and better than ever.
5: Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work.
4: No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the
2: post-Crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time, every Thursday, at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com
3: Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know those things make for paper? Especially the old ones? Whoa, those things? Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books. Especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books, lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want, or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at 2TrueFreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. ¶¶¶¶
1: back, continuing my Panic in the Sky retrospective. Now, as I said at the beginning of this show, a very special guest has agreed to join me today for a fond look back at Superman, Panic in the Sky. And so it's with great pleasure that I welcome Dan Jurgens. Hey, good morning, Trentus. How are you? I'm very good. Very good. How are you? Just fine. Ready to roll. All right. Great. Glad to hear it. Uh, I first of all would like to begin uh, by thanking you for taking the time to to be here. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. <laughs> so, Dan, it's been over twenty years since Panic in the Sky was released. So, after all this time, what are your what are your thoughts about the story? What about it stands out for you?
6: Well, I think it, well, there are a couple of things. One is it was fairly um, early in our run. On Superman, that once the Superman line had been expanded to four books, mm-hmm. that we were trying to do. Uh, s- let's see. Um, no, I take that back. We hadn't. Ex- yeah, it did. It involved all four books. I'm sorry. I think Man of Steel was still in its first year of publication. So it was one of our earlier efforts in terms of trying to build uh, that story across all four titles and get all four creative teams on the same page. So. That is one of the very basics, because later I think that would come into play and serve us very well on the death of Superman stuff. The other part of it is that. And I think this was a real um, driver for me in terms of wanting to do the story, is that I always had a problem in that so often we would see Superman on Earth. And the aliens would strike, and all of a sudden there'd be like this tremendous conflict on Earth, and all that kind of stuff, and you know, great loss of property and lives, perhaps that that general kind of thing in the stories. And I always said I wanted to see a more proactive Superman. I wanted to see Superman becoming aware of a threat that was out there, and I wanted to see him assembling a group of people to go out and deal with that threat. Make him a leader. Make him proactive make him really work to avoid the prospect of having Earth get damaged. And that's really what I remember most.
1: Well, and in relation to that, I think it was actually a... a it's one of those stories, and I mean this as a compliment, but it's one of those story ideas that even reading it at the time, I, I remember thinking, it's obvious to the point of, I don't understand why someone didn't think of this before. Sure. Yeah, so um, now... um. I'm not sure if you've quite answered this part or not, but what are you most proud of with Panic in the Sky now? I mean, it's it's been you know 20 years now of living with this thing. What uh, what are your favorite parts? You know, uh, it, and it doesn't even have to be material necessarily that you wrote, but what what really stands out that you that you look back on fondly?
6: Well, for me, I think <laughs> it's going to be kind of an odd answer, and it would be the two covers because if you look at uh, I think it was the cover to Superman 65 that had the characters the charging forward. Right. And then the cover to number 66, you really are seeing sort of a before and after effect there of here are the heroes, healthy and hearty and whole. Um, on Superman 66, it's the white background. And we've got Superman and Captain Marvel and Batman and company charging forward toward the camera. And then in Superman 66, we see them immediately afterwards. Uh, in their skeletal selves and to me that was just a bit of a a cover gag that said you know before and after effect and you know it's the kind of thing we don't do enough of in comics anymore because it's hard to get people to agree to do it so i just look back on it and say hey i think the two covers that i was able to draw for superman itself were great
1: i would agree with that actually those are some of my uh, favorite covers for the for the very reason you mentioned and it it it's just that extra little bit of um, connective tissue that just kind of ties the whole thing of it together. So, And it's, and by the way, kudos for remembering the exact issue numbers. I mean, I have them right up in front of me, so that's how I'm able to know. But I'm kind of impressed that you can remember the, uh, the specific issue numbers.
6: Well, I, I, you know, I was going to actually grab the uh, trade paperback before we sat down, and um, I didn't get a chance to do so, so you'll have to help me out a little bit. But yeah, I do remember the issue numbers involved. I I think it was the issue of action that kicked the entire story off where we had Supergirl on the cover as just kind of a nice, quiet Supergirl pose. I was also real happy with that one because, uh, you know, that too is the kind of thing you don't often get to do. Usually uh, people are looking for the big fight cover and so it would have been Supergirl, you know, in combat with someone. Uh, and instead she's just there with a nice space background and everything, and I'm very happy with that as well.
1: Right, and that's uh, the cover to Action Comics number 674, and that's the, as, as you say, it's the uh, the prologue, the jump-on point, as they used okay. to say. So, yeah, and I, and I agree. Um, and, and actually, you know, this is kind of straying a bit from your participation, but I kind of feel like Bob McCloud never really got his – uh, do as far as appreciation for his for his run on the character, but I've always had a real fondness for it so I'm a sucker for his for his take on Superman to be honest so
6: yeah and quite honestly, I would echo exactly what you said one hundred percent that um, Bob did some great work on the titles and if you go back to and here's where I don't remember the issue number there's this great cover he did with Superman and a and a dinosaur's mouth I believe and uh you know he really did a fabulous run
1: on those issues in general and yeah you're right never quite got his due um and if i'm thinking of the right thing i'm gonna have to flip back to it but that sounds like the cover for action comics number 664 and this is it yeah um it's and uh it was basically part of the uh, time and time again storyline where right i think superman got thrown back to uh, the jurassic age and so but yeah uh Anyway, so I, I've, like I said, I mean, I, I would have to be less impressed with his work before I could be more impressed with it. But um, anyway, that's uh, that's my Bob McLeod fanboy leak there. So as far as Panic in the Sky is concerned, uh, what, if anything, would you do differently today as far as telling the story or maybe even something maybe a little bit different with the art? You know, maybe this didn't turn out so well or the way you would have wanted. What What is there on that?
6: I don't think there would be. I, I mean, I... <laughs> You know, as I said, I look back on it and was very happy with it, that uh, if you go back to what we were doing at that time, that before uh, the Panic in the Sky storyline, we had also done like the Dark Knight over Metropolis that that was across the three books. And that just was released in trade. But uh, that was before Man of Steel existed. Uh, We had done the Superman in Exile storyline. Then when Man of Steel came about as a new title, we kind of did the the group exercise around Man of Steel 1, that what you saw, I think, was a group of creators developing the system by which they could work together and tell a big macro-level story. And Panic in the Sky served us very, very well that way. And it really was setting the stage, for what we would be able to do a year later in the death of Superman. So, and in terms of the story itself, you know, it really was, I think, if you look back at where Superman was in terms of John Byrne redoing the character, Mm -hmm. he was Superman in the DCU, but he was not really plugged into the rest of the DC universe as a leader. And I think this is the story in which that happened. So, yeah, I, I mean, if I think back to the high notes we were trying to hit with the story, I think we hit them.
1: Um, and I also think you're hitting on actually all my notes. It's almost like you have a copy of my notes because you're sort of going through it almost like in the same order, I might add. But um, one of the things I was actually going to say – and by the way, I, I I agree with all of that. Um, but one of the I, – I was reading these comics when they, when they came out. Now, I was well, – let me think. I was probably about 11 years old, and all I knew was that I really – I like the way, in some ways, I, I kind of had a love hate thing going with the um, triangle numbering system and the, and the sort of weekly story that that the creative team was developing at the time because well, you well, you know how it is you're eleven years old and it's hard to make to, to make it to um, the comic book store every single week to you know to pick up the new stuff or necessarily even get there on a monthly basis. But um, in the years leading up to Panic in the sky. You and the Superman team had, like you said, done Day of the Krypton Man. You'd done Dark Knight over Metropolis, Crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite time and time again. And even at the time that I was reading this, when all of these things were coming out, it just felt like major things were constantly happening in the Superman books. And it also felt like Panic in the Sky was the logical continuation of all that. It was just a very inspired time and I just have a tremendous affection for that for that era but as I say you sort of read off my notes already but um, you wrote uh, two issues of Panic in the Sky and this kind of touches on the uh, triangle numbering system the nature of st- storytelling in the Superman books at the time was that one creative team from one comic would uh, tell one chapter of the story, and then the next week it would be a different team, the next week it would be a different team, so on and so forth. You, What that worked out to for you was that you wrote and drew two issues of Panic in the Sky, the second chapter and then the big climax. Were there ever instances, including Panic in the Sky or anything else, but were there ever instances where you... Kind of wished you would have been able to tell an entire story from beginning to end with all due respect to your colleagues
6: well they really this is um, kind of a two-part answer because the easy uh, answer would be yes I think everybody who's a writer likes to look back and think gosh I wish I could have done that myself That's the easy answer but then the the further answer that is absolutely required beyond that is, Everybody was contributing to the overall effort. And had I done it all by myself, for example, it would have been a, probably a very different story. And so I look back on it and I think of the uh, the different perspectives that were brought to the story, whether it be by Roger or Wheezy or Jerry, uh, that they added so much to it. You know, it becomes sort of an inconceivable question in the first place that. Everybody was in on it. Everybody added to it. Everybody helped flesh out this this thing that starts with a basically small idea into something much larger. So to that extent, everybody has ownership in the idea. Everybody is trying to drive the story to the same place. And that, once again, was what allowed us to conceive and execute these larger-than-life type of stories that Superman should have.
1: Well, and I agree with it. But like I said, I mean, as a uh, young kid, it's it it, it was just a little bit of a pain in my neck to have to go through all of that. So, you know, know, the
6: funny thing is, the funny thing is, Francis, we used to talk about that. I mean, because if you look at the time frame that this would existed in. So we were probably planning that story in 1990, you know, because we'd always get together. We'd plan out a story. And then actually execute it six months later and seven, eight months later, and then it would hit the stands. So we were probably planning that story in 1990. All of us in that room grew up reading stories uh, and were the kind of readers that bought them on the newsstand. And we knew how frustrating it was to read, you know, issue 15. And then you never see issue 16. And all of a sudden you're there and it's number 17. So it's funny, we would talk about that. And we would joke about it a little bit. But at the same time, we thought we were providing something a little bit bigger, and better than your typical comic book. And, um, you know, it, it was also that idea that when we wrote it, we really were acutely aware of the idea that not everybody might get all eight issues. So that, it, it, anytime you picked up the storyline from where the previous writer was you had to make sure you snuck in enough information that you were filling in some
1: backstory for someone
6: so we, we uh we were certainly aware of the concerns you would have had as a as a young reader at that time
1: well it, it's good to know but you know i just the few times i ever could make it to uh, the comic book store and to the extent that people talked about Superman which no offense it really wasn't that much at that exact moment it would that was still a few months off um that was one of the things that people would constantly hit upon was you know how original and how unique the the storytelling structure in the Superman books really was and i don't think it's ever really been i remember that there were attempts for uh, you know at DC and at Marvel to sort of do a I don't know, a copycat job on that, on this type of storyline where, or storytelling where storylines are spread out over multiple titles, but none of them really, they, they didn't quite achieve the same unity. And I think, you know, maybe exhibit a for that would be the Spider-Man books, which I'm sure you could probably speak to as well. Yep. <laughs> but um, anyway, it is, it, it's one of those things that I can appreciate on, on a, you know, from a very technical standpoint. Now, my Gosh, what Mike Carlin, the sleepless nights he must have had trying to coordinate all of this, all all of these stories and all of this creativity and everything and trying to make it all feel of a piece with everything else. I I shudder to think.
7: (laughs) Well,
6: it certainly started with Mike. Um, Mike was a brilliant editor who had incredibly strong story instincts. And people ask me all the time, well, what are the best attributes of an editor? And it is for me, it's commitment to character it's commitment to his creative teams, it's commitment to the title, and it's great instincts. And that's a very hard thing to flesh out, but when I say instincts, it is the idea of sitting in the room, whether it be with one writer or four writers, and tossing out ideas and knowing which ones start to work. That's commitment to character and commitment to the title. And it's then knowing how you can get that the best out of the creative team. And that's commitment to the creative team that the more an editor is committed to a creative team, the better work they're going to get out of that group of creators. And Mike is fantastic in every one of those aspects that I mentioned.
1: Well, I've never, I've never spoken to him or anything like that. I've never met him. I've never had a chance to talk to him at a con or anything like that, but the impression I've gotten from him um, from, Interviews that he's that he's given, you know, whether I, you see him on YouTube or DVD extras or in print, just wherever, is that he kind of viewed himself as being sort of an enabler. Um, if, if a uh, I don't if you or if Jerry Ordway or whoever were, uh, if you were stuck on an idea for a cover, then you know he could help you spitball ideas on what might make a, a, a compelling image, or if you don't necessarily know how to. It just kind of felt like he, he, he wasn't just an editor. He was sort of a storytelling kind of ally.
6: Oh Well, yeah, very much so. But I, again, I think that's, um, that's all part of what I talk about when I say commitment to character. that I, I mean, to me, if um, anyone ever asked me to write a particular character, so they call me up and say, Dan, do you want to do Popsicle Man? Uh, that the first conversation you have to have is, well, who is Popsicle Man? Because the writer and editor have to discuss that at that point to make sure that they agree on who that character is. And I'll tell you right now that there are, are a number of times where that conversation never even really takes place. <laughs> that, oh. And I know it sounds illogical, but that is kind of the way it goes. That It starts with making sure that the writer's vision of the character matches the editor's vision of the character, that the development you want to work on in terms of where the title goes is in sync, you know, all that
0: stuff.
1: I understand. Um, And I guess uh, in simpler terms, uh, this story, Panic in the Sky, specifically offered the opportunity to write and especially draw a bunch of different characters beyond Superman and his standard supporting cast. And, I reserve the right to be wrong on this one, but I think some of these you had never driven you, – you'd never drawn before in, um, in publication. So were there any characters you really enjoyed working on, uh, drawing or writing or what have you, uh, outside of Superman's regular milieu?
6: Well, I always found um, Terminator, Deathstroke. Right. would be fun to work with. Uh I think that that was probably the first time I ever did anything with Captain Marvel. And so that was that was fun just because to me that is still such a classic costume and classic look that I enjoyed that. But, you know, the other part was that it, it was sort of me doing um, a little bit of Justice League before I got on to Justice League. That, that was that was part of it as well. I didn't really plan it that way or intend it to be that, but it wouldn't have been uh, but a several months after panic in the sky that I also took on uh, Justice League of America.
1: Right and actually that sort of skips ahead a little bit but yeah that that was one of the things that I that, that I was also going to talk to you about. It, I remember very clearly you know uh, your run on Justice League of America and then when you flip back to panic in the sky, not necessarily every single character, but you can see the – I guess the, the core members of, of uh, I guess, the Juergens era of, uh, of uh, the uh, Justice League. You can – you see them in the pages of um, Panic in the Sky. There's Fire, Ice, Blue Beetle, Guy Gardner, Superman, all of them. They're all – th- in fact, I think everybody except Martian Manhunter – I don't actually see him immediately. Yep. I, I forget what his status was, but otherwise, I think Booster – I think they were all otherwise there. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, it's just a uh, – I was actually going to ask you if that was intentional, but um, I guess you answered that. So
6: Well, it, it was intentional in that if you look at what the um, Justice League books were at that time, they were still very much the Keith Giffen, Maxwell Lord kind of jokey, funny, uh, humorous Justice League, right? So, right. Uh, this was me doing kind of a Justice League straight sort of approach
1: well and for a uh, uh, I I was just so young it's not that you know I was reading all of this for the first time as as an experienced reader this was actually my introduction to a lot of these characters I, I didn't really know a whole lot about Booster Gold just because I was so young and this was my first exposure to them so to me this is what the Justice League was always kind of supposed to be. I mean, maybe not quite this big, but these are the types of problems that they should be they should be handling. And uh, that it's funny what informs your sensibilities depending upon when you come into the game. Um, honestly, I mean, we've pretty m- you've <laughs> you are a content generator because you pretty much talked through a good a goodly uh, portion of my notes. So. Um, Okay. (laughs) One of the things, though, that I that I wanted to do was just kind of give you the floor for a second. You know, is there you know, uh, are there any is there anything that you would want to talk about that I haven't specifically mentioned? Um, Things maybe that weren't able to be done on the uh, in the storyline or or what have you?
6: No, I I really don't think so. I mean, uh, for me. uh, There are a couple of stories that we planned and executed where I really think we did get to do everything we wanted to do. And I certainly remember panic in the sky that way, that it really started with the idea, the base idea, which was don't let the threat get to earth. Superman rallies the troops and goes out and deals with it. Boom. That, that starts it off right there. That was the core idea of what the story was supposed to be so we were able to successfully execute that and really have i think and this is sort of hard to think of these days i suppose but it was superman being uh kind of taking on that leadership role in the dcu for the first time
1: right and yeah that's actually i, I hate to say it but i have kind of had to confess uh ignorance i was still so young and still fairly new to the idea of collecting that I didn't realize this was it wasn't a first but it was something that was sort of rare for Superman that he hadn't really he'd always sort of held the the rest of the DC universe sort of at arm's length whether that was on 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 purpose or not that was just the way that you know things had been done up to that point but that was an association I hadn't I hadn't really connected the dots about and so I didn't I didn't understand that he that this was new new turf for him yeah. at the time, and uh, but that, I as I say, I mean, I, I could gush about uh, all that. Uh, I could, I could gush about that actually all all day long. And but um, I know that I know that you're pressed for time. But one of the things though, actually, and this honestly just occurred to me as I flipped through my my trade paperback. One of the um, the uh, main, I don't know, uh, legacies of uh, of this uh, of this story in the short term was inserting the uh, protoplasmic shape-shifting clone of Lana Lang called Supergirl into the uh, day-to-day Superman continuity and, and, and into the Superman titles. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever whenever this project first started, again, was that something that you guys knew was going to be how you ended this or, or did you just want to continue Matrix's story? Uh, what was the deal there?
6: Well, I think we always felt that... Um In terms of Matrix, we had a Supergirl and everybody in the room wanted to make Superman or I'm sorry, Supergirl a more prominent part of the titles that uh, to us, there had to be a way to get that done. And so our our quest to sort of include Supergirl on a more frequent basis was absolutely a goal throughout. I mean, even if we had not done Panic in the Sky, I'm quite sure we would have found a way to give Supergirl a more prominent role in the book and you know, across all the books. Right.
1: OK. All right. And. Um, actually, and that actually sort of brings up a uh, an, another question, if you have time for it, um, the idea of pairing her up romantically with Lex Luthor, the uh, second, who's going to take the blame for that? <laughs>
6: Uh, I, you know, I always find, um, unlikely alliances like that not to work because they're too unlikely. The only reason that I could even buy it in terms of Supergirl is that because she was Matrix, she obviously had a certain level of naivete that made it allowable.
1: Right. Um, right, and I I, I actually kind of liked it uh, reading it at the time. I thought it was um, it was just an interesting twist to have uh, a uh, Superman's ally. Let me think. Uh, well, I want to keep this G rated. Uh, basically, romantically connected to uh, Superman's enemy, and no one even knows that it's Superman's enemy. And there were just there were so many layers of I don't I don't know. I just I, I thought it worked beautifully. So <laughs> kudos okay. to you guys for making that work. I, I always. I, I thought that was very well done. Um, so I guess to uh, we're coming up. We're actually, we're closing in actually on the 30-minute mark. Um, I'm, I'm honestly not sure what it is that, that you're up to at the moment. I, and I, I'm not saying this to slam on DC. I'm just saying this as a statement of fact. The creative teams change so much. It's hard to keep up with who's drawing or writing which character, which month. Uh, what do you have going on right now? Right now, I'm working on two different projects that I really can't
6: get into specifically because we have not announced them yet. Oh, uh, but look for them in you know spring summer 2014.
1: Okay. Um. Well, uh, then I guess to to work backwards, then I know that you you had a uh, it wasn't a backup story because there were so many stories, but um there was there was a i think an 8 page short in uh, superman i want to say it was superman number 700 that came out uh i guess it was like 2 years ago or something like that mm-hmm. and then also more recently there was there was a run on the uh, new 52 uh superman that uh unfortunately for me uh, your run on uh on a uh, uh or rather your new run on uh superman with uh, keith giffen um ended up coinciding with my exit from uh most modern uh, comics for reasons you know obvious and maybe not so obvious but uh uh for whatever it's worth i was able to track down back issues of that later on and i i thought you did a a, a phenomenal job with it i it, it was not exactly as what you'd done before but it was it was reminiscent but it was i don't know it just it felt like you were you were giving a new take on something that you're already so well associated with i, I it's not that I didn't think you could do it. I was just expecting your the uh, your work from the 90s basically grafted onto the new 52 Superman. But no, you you basically reimagined the way that you did Superman. So I thought it was very well done. Well, thank you. So, okay, well, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining me today. It's been a a real pleasure talking to you. So Likewise. I'm gonna go ahead and and, uh, and uh, cut it off. I'll just play a a couple of promos and I'll uh, see you all next week. Okay,
2: very good. Thank you, Trenta. Thank you. Yeah, 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 play it. Come on. Yeah, play it loud. Play it loud.
0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpile out. Speak. Two. You belong in a circus. (laughs) Right next to the dog-faced boy.
2: True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. All out of bubble
0: Oh shit. Six. It's a super prize package worth nine thousand three hundred and eighty-eight dollars. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Go away, And now. <laughs> Together by live simulation
2: via the internet.
5: Your hosts.
2: Scott Gardner. He
5: killed a police officer for Christ's sake. goddamn lucky did kill
0: And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You
6: have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Oh.
0: At me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now, come on, hey God, go. she likes me. No way. Shut up, you freak! Julius, you. I'll shut up! It's a man! Home! A man! Home! To true freaks.com.
2: Wow, I'm. Really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located like at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that.
7: Good afternoon.
2: Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you?
7: My name is Dufo de Manzo. Where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh,
2: okay. What is it?
7: I have listened to your podcasts and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you. One that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so... You will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it.
2: Oh, well, that sounds great. What do I need to do?
7: You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay, cool.
2: Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll catch you all next week.
7: Bravo. Bravo. God!
2: How the hell did you find me and how did you get in my house?
7: Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me.
2: Uh, But you never said what you wanted from me.
7: That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com, and I am gathering up podcasts such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network, And in return, our debt will be settled.
2: Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt?
7: Do you accept my offer?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli?
7: Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys,
2: every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941.
4: A world very much like our own, yet slightly different.
0: A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces
4: of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The The All-Star
2: Squadron
0: Tales of the Justice Society of America every Friday at 2
7: Okay,
1: and we're back now. I've got just a little bit of feedback to go through this time, and so without any further ado, first up I've got a an iTunes review entitled I Can't Recommend It Enough by the Keith 902 and he writes Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is informative, insightful and sometimes just laugh-out-loud funny If you aren't listening yet then stop wasting time reading this Wait, go ahead and finish the review I did go to the effort to type it but then afterward, or at the same time Download an episode. You know what? Just subscribe. Get them all. Every episode has been excellent. You will not be disappointed. Now, I need to stop typing so I can listen to the latest episode about Kingdom Come. Does Magnus love it or hate it? I don't know. Guess I'll have to check it out. Signed, Chris Keith. So, let me start by saying, Chris, thank you very much for this uh, iTunes review. And second of all, I really hope you enjoyed the Kingdom Come episode. And honestly, that's only just, uh, at the time I record this, that's only uh, just come out. And so, I don't really know what the reaction to that has been. and or, or rather, I don't know what the reaction to that is going to be. And so, my fear though is that... A lot of people are maybe not going to take very kindly to some of the things that I had to say about it. In particular, Alex Ross's contribution. So, not really sure where that's going, but I feel like I should just say that... You can think of this as preemptively covering my ass, I guess. <sighs> I've never been overly fond of the way that Alex Ross does... Uh, his art. It's not that I have anything against the guy personally. I'm not saying he's some kind of son of a bitch or something like that. You know, nothing like that. Just saying that his work has always sort of left me cold. Both in terms of style, that painted thing that he does that looks like reality but isn't reality, or it's selectively reality, or just however... I don't know. I, honestly, I, I don't know what the aesthetic there is supposed to be about. I don't understand the philosophy of it. But on a, also on a, on a uh, less stylistic and more technical level, I'm just not impressed with him in terms of the way that he puts together a page. And as I said in the episode itself, if you look at any number of artists, there's a strong sense of visual storytelling, and the, the pages are just assembled in a logical way. And the best thing that I can think of to compare that to is that when you shoot... A movie or an episode of a TV show or something like that. There are certain rules that you abide by. For instance, let's say that it's an episode of Smallville, since that kind of relates to what we're going to be talking about in the not-too-distant future. It's an episode of Smallville, and it's a scene, it's Lana and Clark in the barn, right? Well, what you might have is a coverage um, angle, right? It's basically an angle that has both Lana and Clark facing each other within the frame, right? And then you do close-ups. So you position the camera, I don't know, behind Lana, on her uh, right on her left shoulder, right? And so you're, you're positioning Lana on the right side of the frame, and Clark is on the left side of the frame, just like it was in our coverage. He was standing on the left, Lana was standing on the right. When it's time for uh, close-ups... You position the camera behind Lana's left shoulder so that, again, Lana is standing on the right, Clark is standing on the left. When it's time to do Clark or uh, Lana's uh, close-ups, what you do is you position the camera behind Clark's right shoulder so that, again, Lana is on the right and Clark is on the left. This is the way that, y- that, that you do that type of a... Uh, That type of a scene. And it's a very simple way to do it. I gave you a very simple example. But the purpose for that is uh, to illustrate a point. All right? At all times, the director of that episode is keeping Clark on the left side of the frame and Lana on the right side of the frame. And that's... I, I don't know why it's this way, but it's just fucking... that That's the way that it works. Right? And comics have very similar types of rules at times even the same rule where you keep certain action on the left side of the panel, certain action on the right side of the panel. And that's a that's supposed to be a rule that you consistently apply all throughout the page. Alex Ross doesn't do that. And that among other things just leads to a lot of the technical weaknesses that I think that I think he has. And again, I have nothing against him on any kind of a personal level. I don't have some kind of a grudge there, or some sort of an axe to grind. It's nothing like that, all right? I'm just saying that I'm not overly impressed with the way that he handles his business, all right? So, anyway, I'm not sure where you're coming from on all this. I'm not sure if you're a huge Mark Wade fan, or if you're a huge Alex Ross fan, or if there's just something about Kingdom Come that just does it for you, all right? I honestly don't know, but what I'm hoping is that if you listen to that episode, and if parts of it turn you off, Chris, or for that matter, anybody else who's listening to this, just keep in mind I'm. I try not to have a, a sort of angry, ranty type of show, all right? I and I and I also don't want to have some sort of a a show that's based all on shock value. That's not the kind of show that I want to have. I want to, if I'm going to criticize something, I want to keep it basically about the work. Right, and so that's how that's just the way that I've elected to do all of this. And my hope is that even if you disagree with with what I have to say, you 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 can still at least acknowledge that I'm speaking from the heart rather than from a point of view of not liking those creators personally. Because honestly, I don't really know anything about Alex Ross apart from his work, and well, actually, I, I do know one thing. But um, I. It's just, it's one of those things that, it doesn't affect me really one way or the other, but it's just, he has an opinion about something, well, fuck it, it's a, it's a, it's a very negative opinion about George Lucas, but otherwise, I don't really know anything about Alex Ross, and so I don't really have any sort of a uh, personal gripe there, or an axe to grind, or a grudge, or anything like that, so hopefully all of that makes sense, so um, that, as it stands, um, thank you very much, uh, Chris. I really appreciate you, uh, taking the time to write, uh, this iTunes review, especially since I know, as I've said before, I know that it's a little bit of a pain in the neck to log into the, uh, to the iTunes program, and then you have to, uh, well, you have to log in, and then you have to find the right, uh, podcast, you have to seek it out, and then you have to write the review and everything. I know that it's a little bit of a pain in the neck, so thank you very much, Chris. I do appreciate you taking the time to, uh. Write all of that. Um, That's the first bit of feedback uh, that I've got. Now, the second one. uh, This came on January the 12th. This was written by Joseph. And forgive me, Joseph. I'm not sure if I'm butchering your name here or not. But it looks like it's Joseph um, Byro. I'm not sure if I'm not trying to make fun of your name. I'm just saying I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation of it, but. Anyway, Joseph writes, Mr. Magnus, just wanted to drop some quick feedback in response to your Christmas special. I have to say, as much as I love your usual speaker-cracking, headphone-detonating episodes, this has been far and away my favorite. It was great to hear you getting a little personal and sentimental, in only the manliest ways possible, of course, and I hugely connected to your retrospective on the past few years. My wife and I had a very dark year as well. For us, it was 2012. Like you, I'm not going to go into it, but suffice it to say that when the big ball in New York finally fell, I was glad to see it go. 2013 was what you might call a rebuilding year for us, and we've been blessed with positive beginnings all around. I'm hoping that 2014 will continue that trend for us, and that it'll be a great year for you and all of your endeavors as well. Anyway, that's about it, except to say that your podcast makes excellent and inspiring fuel for running. Another thing that started in 2013, and which was extremely against my nature. Also, I first found your show through Sean Angles, just one of the guys, and not your commercial, which was great, but the ringing personal endorsement he gave... And right he was. I say that just in case he gets a $25 gas card or something for the referral. Take care, and I look forward to the next episode. Joseph Byro. And again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, first of all, uh, uh, Joseph, thank you very much. You know, it's kind of funny. This is the, so far at least, the only feedback I've actually gotten about my Christmas episode so far there's just not really been much to talk about. So, uh, first of all, thank you for writing in at all, and second of all, thank you for singling out the uh, Christmas special. Because I gotta tell you, when I first started this podcast, one of the things—and I'm not—I am not criticizing the people who who don't have this policy. I'm just saying that my policy was that I didn't want to get too personal in this show, and the reason for that, well, partly it's that I'm I'm sort of a private person by nature just to begin with um and so there's that to think about but the other thing is for as much as i connect to shows that have a whole lot of personal content from the host for whatever reason i've never really connected that to someone possibly being interested or maybe more interested in my show if i were to get more personal it I don't know. It's one of those things, I can always change my mind about it in the future, but once I start down that path, there's no way to take it back. It's out there forever, you know? So that's been sort of my reluctance in in getting, I don't know, too confessional with this show. Now, I suspended that, obviously, for the Christmas episode, and the reason was... I felt like it all sort of related to the New Year theme, you know. Uh, That I think most people they associate New Year, and by which I mean the New uh, New Year's Day, but I guess maybe the couple of days surrounding New Year's Day, sort of with a time of renewal and restoration. uh, It's I guess a new start in a lot of ways, and I think that's what it means to a lot of people, and to a degree, that's kind of what it means for me too and i thought it would be just kind of interesting to, to talk about all that stuff now full disclosure I, I like i said at the top of that episode i i did that show completely without any kind of notes or larger master plan i basically had two or three items i wanted to talk about and then that was pretty much it so so yeah and it was uh it wasn't i, I mean i don't want to On the one hand, I don't want to dramatize it and say that it was, uh, you know, this huge nerve-wracking ordeal, and I wasn't sure, you know, what... I don't mean it like that. I mean, it's just... It it did not exactly come naturally to me. And so, what I'm driving at and all... Oh, and by the way, before actually I I go too much further along with this, um, what I think, for those of you who haven't heard my Christmas special, what I think Joseph is talking about was that starting with the year 2010... Actually, first, what I did was I started talking about what happens every November, and what I've noticed is that for the past several years, shit goes down during the month of November for me. I don't understand what it is, but usually my life gets turned completely upside down every November. Now, it's not always a bad thing. All right, I'm not saying that uh, it's only—it's—it's it's always a shit storm during the month of November. But at the same time, it's always a game changer. You know, one way or the other, things have changed after November of each year. And it's just a pattern that I've noticed. And so that's what I said. That was kind of my premise leading into a sort of retrospective of the past couple of years. I started with the year uh, 2010, which... All in all, it was just kind of a shit year for me all around. I don't want to rehash too much of it, but it was just a it was just a really just fucking bad time. All right, all around, and it bottomed out in November of that year. November of twenty ten. That's when it for as as terrible as that year was. November of that year, fuck, it sucked out loud. All right, it was it was just horrible right? Horrible. 2011 was basically uh, 2011's total opposite. It was like the bizarro opposite. Nothing except cool shit happened in 2011. And then even when we got to November, you know, it was still nothing but good things. It's just going the other way now. And um, so on and so on, you know, for 2012, anyway. And so that, I think, is what Joseph is primarily responding to here. So, uh, so again, thank you very much, Joseph, for for listening at all, number one, but number two, for, I guess, connecting to that episode. I mean, I'm only as good as, as, as my, my listeners and what they bring to the table, and it's obvious that this touched you in a very personal way, too, and I have to tell you, that's actually pretty humbling, because when I first started this podcast especially, I figured that, basically the way that it was going to work was that um, the big boys were going to have most of it covered, you know, and I think you probably know the obvious people that I'm talking about here, you know, the the big guns, they've got the majority of the marketplace locked up, and so the best I could hope for was maybe a half a dozen or a dozen or something like that um, people listening to my show, and then that's about as good as I can hope for, you know. And that is not what has happened at all. So that, so by itself, that was just very unexpected. But the other thing is, like I said, I'm only as good as what I, as you know, what my listeners bring to the table. And I'm, I'm actually very happy that that this hit you, you know. And I mean, I've been hit by uh, podcast episodes a few times myself where. That was exactly what I needed to hear at exactly the time I needed to hear it. I'm not saying that you, know, you feel that strongly about this show. I'm just saying that I think one of the first times I really connected to, to a particular podcast, and I mean on like a, just a gut, personal level, right? Not just, well, I like what they're talking about, and so I'm going to listen, right? I think the very first podcast episode that hit me that way, was the views from the Longbox uh, Catharsis special with Scott Gardner. And it was basically Michael my, uh, Michael Bailey was having a, a sort of rough time of it as a Superman fan at the, uh, at the time that the show was recorded. And I think Scott Gardner was actually very much on the same page with him. He was having a rough time with it as well. And when it comes to that, I mean, we, you know, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey, as far as Superman fandom is concerned, we all went to the same high school. And so, as you can imagine, I was having a, a very hard time of it, too. And it just felt to me like that episode put into words everything that was that I had problems with, both with Superman specifically, but with comics in general at the time, that I, I just wasn't all that into it. And anyway, the point is the catharsis special put it into words a whole lot better than what I'm going to be able to do here. But it was a very emotional... Uh, episode. I mean, there were times when you could tell that, you know, Scott and Mike were getting uh, a little bit upset just even talking about this stuff. And I really connected to that because I I mean, cuz that that was me at the time too. I th- my beloved burn-age superman was getting shown the door. And it just it, it just felt like, you know, what the fuck is going on? Why is this happening and all of that. And and so yeah, I mean, I think I've listened to that episode the Catharsis uh, episode of Views from the Long Box. I bet I've probably listened to it like four times now since it's come out. Um, let me think. That was like 2010, 2009. I don't It was something like that. Um, and I probably listened to it uh, four times, you know. And most, most uh, podcasts. They have kind of single-serving episodes, you know, where you listen to it once, but that's really it. I mean, you you can delete it after that. You got what you needed from it, and so you can just move on. But every once in a while, you get lucky, and a podcaster will do an episode that has repeat-listen value. And I consider the catharsis episode of Views from the Long Box to be one of them, obviously, because I've listened to it four times. Uh, since it's, since it came out all those years ago, which, that's a lot. I mean, usually, I li- like I said, I listen to, to a, any podcast episode once, and that's it. So, for me to say that I've listened to the Catharsis show four times and what's it been, like five years or something like that, that's a lot. That is a lot for me. So, I don't know what that works out to for other people, but that's a lot for me. So, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not presuming that my christmas special was that for you but it would god that would be so fucking cool if it was oh my gosh i would i would fi- i would love that anyway so moving on though what you went on to say was that your wife and you had a very dark year during uh 2012 and that 2013 was a time of turning things around renewing rebuilding and all of that and it was just positive beginnings and uh, you know what dude i fucking, you know, good on you, you know, I mean, I hope that continues all throughout 2014, because especially whenever you have a wife that you can share all that stuff with, and I don't, not really, um, it just, it just, I don't know, makes a difference, you know, and so, I, you know, I just hope that 2014 is everything that you want it to be, dude, I hope it's, I hope it's the greatest year of your life, so, uh, either way, though, thank you very much for taking the time to write. And to, to everyone who wrote in this time, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, those, That's basically it as far as feedback is concerned. That iTunes review and then Joseph uh, Byrose episode. Again, Joseph, I'm not trying to make fun of you whenever I say this. I honestly, I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name. So um, I guess Byrow is 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 how I should do it. But if, if that's wrong, just uh, please don't take offense to that because uh, I'm, I'm kind of clueless here. So, But to Chris Keith and to Joseph, thank you both very much for taking the time to write in. I really appreciate it. And uh, as far as feedback is concerned, that's it. So uh, that means that's pretty much it for this show. So what I'm going to do is just, again, thank uh, Dan Juergens for participating in this show. Um, he's a very busy person. He didn't have to he, he didn't have to uh, talk to me and he nevertheless spent about a half hour of his time actually I think it was probably closer to 40 minutes between prep and then saying goodbyes and everything with this episode itself in uh, in between so actually probably closer to 40 minutes but he still nevertheless spent uh, 30 minutes that you guys heard talking to me about panic in the sky and guys he didn't have to do that you know. Uh, It was just really cool of him to take the time out of his schedule to uh, talk to me. So I'd just like to, again, thank him for participating. Thank Joseph and Chris for sending me feedback. And thank all of you for listening. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. And so I'll uh, see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S M-A-G-N-U-S-S You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday, and that's a promise. Did you know you can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested, just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included.